You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Over the past year, when I talked to people involved in the Michael Dunahy search and investigation, a few different words keep coming up. Honor and remorse. I get the sense there is some pride in playing a role in the effort to find Michael. And yet there is humility too. All that work has so far come to naught. There is no doubt that the search for Michael and the investigation that followed is impressive in many ways. The search itself is extensive. The detectives are creative and resources are not an issue. I'm told time and time again, everything that could be done was done. But after more than 30 years, Michael Dunahy's case remains unsolved. Today, Victoria police are accommodating in their dealings with me. To a certain extent, Michael's case is still open. And so the case file itself is off limits to me. Requests for witness statements are denied. Requests to speak about certain suspects, those who have never been publicly named, are also out of bounds. FOI requests come up cold. I work alone, knocking on doors, doing land title searches, cold calling strangers, poring over archival records. I've talked to as many people as I can find who have a connection with Michael and the case. I have promising leads. And yet sometimes I feel like I'm working with both my hands tied behind my back. I'm Laura Palmer. This is Missing Michael, Season 3 of Island Crime. In this episode, I'll introduce you to the most recent detective to take on the Dennehy file, and discuss other suspects, too. But first, meet Dorothy and Keith. Dorothy Arsenault, and I'm Crystal's, uh, Crystal Dennehy's little sister. Okay, my name is Keith Dunahy. I am Michael's uncle. I'm Brewster's oldest brother. As much as Missing Michael is a true crime story, it's also a story about friendship, about loyalty, and about family. Dorothy and Crystal are close. She says her big sister helped raise her and her other siblings. She tells me that growing up, there was a lot of ups and downs in the family home. So much so that Dorothy lives with the newly married Bruce and Crystal for a time when she is a rebellious teen. Dorothy marries a military man, moves east, and when Michael comes along... He was a special boy. I got to take him out, I babysat him. I always usually stayed at my sister's or I stayed at my dad's. And my sister always gave him to me whenever I wanted. I said, I want to spend time with Michael and... I got that time, and that time was really precious to me uh, because we used to go for lunch and we used to go to Toys R Us and go up and down the aisles. And, you know, I spoiled him like he was my own. Like he was, he, Michael was very special in our life. He used to call us Mr. and Mrs. Arse because our last name is Arsenal. And we all oh. thought it was funny. <laughs> oh my God, that is funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle and Auntie Arse. And I was like, that's not good, guys. Like, come on. <laughs> 
it's adorable, but yeah. Yeah. And every time I came back, I always got Michael for the day and we went shopping and, and, uh, I got to spoil him and yeah, my sister had to tell me to back off sometimes. It's like, Hey, I don't get to see him all the time. So forget it. (laughs) Uncle Keith also recalls looking after Michael. Then it was when I went over to go babysit my nephew. It was more looked at as more as an obligation than really uh, as anything else, you know, making sure I did the job right and that he was taken care of and that sort of deal. We used to play a game where I did the handstand thing with him, where he stood on my hands and I was laying my back and I lift him up. And I think I did it with my, my niece, Caitlin, as well. So it was sort of a, like a little game we used to play just uh I don't know if it built up trust or get to know each other or just because I was just a bit silly at the time. I decided, hey, this should be fun. <laughs> you know, you need to be fun, right? Neither Dorothy or Keith are in town the weekend Michael disappears. But neither of them will forget learning Michael has vanished. They apparently didn't want to tell me right away uh, because I was pregnant. They were worried. Uh, the phone rang and I said to my husband, get up, get it. You got to go for, you know, a call because he used to fly all dignitaries and everything everywhere. So he used to get calls at two, three in the morning. So he answered it. And then I remember him coming to wake me up and he's like, you need to wake up. And then he told me and all I just remember is just crying. Like I, I didn't know what to do. Dorothy is across the country. Keith at a remote spot on the northern tip of Vancouver Island. I was up in Cape Scott with two of my friends. We were camping and uh, saw, saw the guest, the lighthouse keeper, leave, walking down, leaving the message at the head of the trail. And, and there's just a message saying for me to come home. Keith is simply told, come home. It's taken him two days to hike in, but he makes it back in a day. Dorothy remembers a kind flight attendant trying to comfort her as she makes her way across the country. I was just in shock that it even happened until I actually got there and I, and I walked in the house. That's when I was like, oh my God, it's happening. And then when I got there, it was almost like I took over mother load because um, Caitlin was six months old. And I just grabbed her and yeah, I think that's where me and Caitlin really got a a good connection when she was younger. Even though she was only six months, I felt like we got a good connection Um, because I I just held her the whole time and took care of her. Well, when I walked in the house, I guess there um, was the news people were talking to her. There was a constable there and my brother-in-law was sitting at the table. My sister, her face was swollen and then I just looked at it. I was in disbelief and I just grabbed her and all we could do was cry. I held her as tight as I could, like I didn't know what to do. I felt at loss. And uh, it was just, you know, one phone call after another and they weren't allowed to answer the phone unless um, it was a message that they needed to answer right away because I guess the police just said, don't answer the phone because the phone was ringing off the hook when I was there. I know my mind that, oh, he'll be home because he knows his phone number. He knows his grandmother's phone number. He was very smart. He knew where my mom lived. He knew where his other grandmother lived. And I'm like, he's going to be home. Like, I'm going to be here. He's going to come home. Everything's going to be okay. Dorothy helps care for Caitlin and lends emotional support to Crystal. Keith recalls wanting answers and wanting action. I think more than anything else, I had questions as to what happened uh, 
as far as that, trying to get information and trying to maintain a level head and try to be more pro-constructive than anything else. I knew my brothers, well, my brother and sister, because their the disappearance of their son would be more emotional or more working more emotionally or from their heart than from their head. So more or less, I thought was my aspect or part of the job was just to maintain a calm and to sort of separate the two, try to find out what's going on, try to think of what could possibly be done or what alternatives or actions to be taken. I mean, it's easy enough to fall apart afterwards, right? Dorothy has an open-ended ticket and stays with her sister to assist in making and distributing missing posters as they wait for Michael to come home. It's just, your mind just keeps going. Like, he is going to come home. He's going to come home. He's going to come home. He's, you know, every morning, my sister, there is a little um, shack outside there that they kept their garbage can. It's like a little um, shed. Every morning. She would check in there, just to think maybe he would, he came home, maybe fell asleep there. He knew his addresses. He knew he knew his phone number, and I still know the phone number because I think they still have it. <laughs> is that so, right? Yeah, they have not gotten rid of that phone number. Keith is out searching. He was a naval reservist, and his training prepares him for the tough task of looking for his nephew. I was part of the uh, search and part of helping organizing and choosing areas for searches. Unlike my brother, sometimes I can go colder and shut the emotions out there. And it's not a place for my brother or Sal to be. I'm not going to jump off the, off the deep end. And I think my brother knew that. It's the role I took up and it's the role he uh, seemed to want me to take up. So that's what I did. Well, each time we finished one and didn't find anything, that was a relief. For, but also no, the feeling in the back of the head and the thinking and the dreading of that just because we looked at the area once doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's done, right? And then we used to find bags of, uh, along the side of these, some of the these logging roads and back roads there, and you're dreading when you have to, well, you, you have to check it out. You can't just walk by it and steam, uh, yeah. To this day, makes me want to gag steam, steam meat in there from, from deer and stuff like that. It's just not a pleasant thought to go back to. Going like uh, the parks and you know back roads, any place where we've got it, someone to get a chip or suspect something or pass on to us, or wrong or right or whether you believe or you don't believe, it's still something you have to follow up. I know it's like grasping the straws at this that stage of the game, but that's all you have, really. Years pass. There are ball tournaments, dances, runs, media interviews. And life without Michael carries on. Crystal and Bruce get back to work, for a time also running their own donair business. They raise their daughter Caitlin in as normal a home as possible. From afar, it appears the Dunahees are weathering the trauma well. But Dorothy and Keith observe just how challenging getting on with life without Michael truly is. My sister, she's she's very tough soul. She's got a very tough soul. She's um I, I keep telling her, you know, like I've been going through counseling a lot lately and I said, you know, my sister's like an angel above. She's, she's strong. She, she was put in her life for a reason. She's, she took up running, running a lot, a lot when she, after Michael went missing. And she always told me that was her, her out, her way to turn off the world and be by herself. 
sadness, a lot of anger because from the, I guess from the father's perspective or is that you're, we're kind of hardwired to protect, right? And uh, he's gone missing and it feels, sometimes it feels like you fail. Sometimes you feel, you, you gotta, you want something to get back at, right? It's just the anger. Then there would be the, the calmness sometimes sort of, uh, you know, it's not calmness really, it's just more of a, a thought or a way of trying to get back to something normal around people so that you don't seem like you're, so you don't distance people and your family and that. It's sort of like a roller coaster. You got all these other emotions that are inside you trying to fight for dominance or get to the surface, but uh, you gotta, you're trying to keep everything in check. It was hard on him just as much as it was hard on Crystal, and I think it's a little bit more harder on Bruce. But it, like, to me, I don't know if you want to bring this up or not. I don't know because I just find that that he's holding on to it more stronger. Not stronger. That's the wrong word to say. He's holding on to it more and not letting it go and letting his life go on like my sister. I remember Caitlin phoning me and saying, Mom's putting everything away. And I said, what's Mom putting away? She goes, she's finally putting away Michael's stuff. And I'm like, what? And then she's like, yeah, she's packing it up. We're keeping it. It's just in the storage room. It was weird to hear that because we all waited for that. When is Crystal going to have a breakdown? When's Crystal, We, I think way in our back of our minds, we were thinking, when is this gonna happen? And needless to say, we don't know because we see the outside. We don't see sometimes the inside because we don't live with her that she never did crumble. I mean, she had her tears. We all have our tears together, but she she's never given up. And I think Caitlin was a big part of that. Because I think if she didn't have Caitlin, I think it would have been a total different story about her. And I look up to her for that. I'm probably gonna cry because she's my savior. Michael's family comes under scrutiny by the police. They must be excluded. And I wonder how much that adds to the emotional toll on the Dunhees. I don't, I don't really think it was because um, in anything they needed to do to get our nephew back is, I think, with the, my brother and I and my sister-in-law and that is, is there. Even my uh, Bruce's brothers-in-laws and that, you know, whatever it took, if you could raise a few skeletons from the past, if there was any, then that, that's what it is. It's the truth. You can't back out of it can't deny it and it leads somewhere fine. The whole objective was to get our nephew back, so do what you got to do when you got to do it. The Dunahees leave the Pioneer Co-op where they had lived as a family with Michael. They build their own home and a life for Caitlin. But Michael's presence lingers here too. The last present Dorothy sent Michael is a large stuffed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Leonardo. They were, of course, all the rage, and Michael loved them. Seeing it sitting in a new room for Michael is unnerving. Um, the first couple of times when I did stay with my sister, um, like when I go out there, Bruce was like, would not let anybody sleep in Michael's room because I had it set up still, even though they moved. They still set up a room for Michael. And then he started letting us sleep in 
Michael's room. And I tell you, it was the weirdest. My kids could never sleep in his room. They said, we see him, mommy. 30 years on, Michael's aunt Dorothy clings to the hope Michael is alive. I have to keep that hope. You know, hopefully one day he'll just come out of the woodwork and, you know, there's been those people that have found out they were missing 30 years, 40 years later. You know, I would just love that to happen. Okay, my name is Detective Sergeant Michelle Robertson. I've been a police officer with Victoria Police for 26 years. She has been on a serial homicide team, a major crime unit, and she's been involved in multiple homicide and suspicious missing person investigations. In 2018, she takes on the Historical Case Review Unit. Michael's case is one of 30 on her desk. Here's the thing with Dunahee file. Um, when I was a young mom, before I started here, I was a, a single mom. And I was walking through the Hillside Mall and I was stopped and checked right after Michael went missing with my son who looked similar. They both had the same sort of haircut. And I was very scared as a young mother when this happened. The impact it had on our community was immense. Nothing like that had ever happened before. So it had an emotional impact for me from the day that it happened, because I was here. Um, I think we all walked around with our kids on flexi leashes after that, so terrified to get let them out of our sight. Uh, so as a young police officer through my career, you dabbled on this case all the time. We were always talking about it. it it's just something that stays with you if you're from that generation. So to get the opportunity at this point in my career to work on the case, it's a, a privilege to work on it. It's a privilege to, to work with Crystal. She's amazing. It can be a little overwhelming and frustrating because it's such a big case and you just want to solve it so badly and so many people have come before you. So many people. So it's, it's emotional for me to be connected with it. You want to do the best that you can, and you never quite feel like you're doing enough. I'm going to keep trying right till I'm gone, and so we don't give up. We just keep working on it. That vow, that pledge to never give up, is behind the name given to a unit formed to reopen the Dunhee case. Here's Sergeant Robertson on Project Vow. So in 2011, this case was reopened with what was called Project Vow, and the chief at the time dedicated a unit of, I believe, six members to do a full review and reopen the case and reorganize the data in the case, which is our biggest challenge with a case this size, is managing the data in an organized way that gives it meaning. They started up and they worked very hard at the case, but the unit was closed abruptly and prematurely because of resource struggles and problems. At the end of the day, we have to be able to man the front lines and we have many obligations to the care of our community. So sadly, it was shut down. And it, so when it was shut down, it, it was shut down in a way that everyone was scrambling to make sure it was in, in the best possible way. And then it's left with one investigator. And so when Sergeant Robertson takes over the file, she has a lot of ground to cover. Basically, it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot of reading. And, and this is the challenge. When you have a case that's 30 years old and this big, 
is not like on TV. It's massive. So when you change roles to bring yourself up to speed on a case this large is almost impossible to really read it. I mean, if I was to sit down, they estimated if I brought all the boxes in and was to sit down to read the whole file, it would take me five years. And the, the information comes in daily. It doesn't stop. The size of the case actually becomes one of its challenges. So we've created roadmaps for one another to follow when we take over. You know, of, uh, these are your priorities to understand and comprehend and a lot, a lot of reading. She describes just what kind of material exists in the file itself. The file is a bit like an onion because it started in 1991, hard copy, everything was paper. Um, there were, they got in a computer for this file and it was the first computer I think we had. You're going to find the original investigative material, um, all the media releases, all of the tips coming in. We had a 24-hour phone line going. We had investigative avenues with other, we had thousands and thousands of police officers working on this case, including from outside agencies. Um, so all of their reports, all of their notes, all of their notebooks, all of their emails, we have to keep everything. Every time someone calls in to the tip line, that gets typed up and added to the file. One of the first things she does is meet with the Dunahees. As soon as I took the case over, I contacted Crystal and I went to their home and I met with both of them and I introduced myself. I explained who I am um, and then I get to know them and want I want to know what their expectations are, what their beliefs are and what communication plan they would like to have with me because communication plans with the families are critical now. What we'll do is sit down and say, okay, well, how, what do you want me to call you about? How do you want me to contact you? When do you want me to contact you? They are veterans of this. You know, I, I approach it that Crystal has worked on this file a lot longer than I have. She's a lot more experienced at dealing with investigators coming in and out of her life. And it's tough because we develop rapports and then we're, we're you know, we're not here forever. So what's it like to open up the massive Dunahee file after almost 30 years. The one thing that I am incredibly impressed with from the beginning of that file was those investigators' willingness to go outside for help when they knew they were, this was big and in over their head. It stands out for me that they, within 24 hours, contacted the FBI in Quantico and serious major crime RCMP and their willingness to let all the help come in and not be, you know, we've got this kind of thing. The amount of volunteers and coordination and air support for searching and willingness to try new techniques really stands out for me from that, from the beginning. Well, I think they quickly realized when Michael went missing that um, this was something they are, we aren't experts in. And in the history of our police department, we have never had a, a child go missing in an abduction type of scenario like this, a, a stranger one where we start getting in, realizing that he didn't just wander off here. Very quickly, they realized that they needed to call in some expertise to give the, the investigation some speed flow and direction to make sure we were going in the right direction. Within 24 hours, they were speaking with the behavioral uh, science unit at Quantico. They're the ones who sort of keep the knowledge of the best practices in these type of cases. So it, it makes sense to go right to the source to make sure we're doing it the right way from the beginning. 
there is no physical evidence and there is no behavioral evidence of anybody. He's simply gone. So in cases like this, the victimology becomes very important. Going back and looking at the whole vic the victim, the family, and trying to ascertain their timeline for the 24 hours before, trying to figure out exactly where they could have had contact with someone. But for, for me to go back and hear those different perspectives and look and see, okay, well, that was the advice given. What did we do and what came out of that? And is there anything I can take from that now? The two things that solve cold cases are technology changes and relationship changes. So with this, technology-wise, do we have a lot? Not really. Uh, because we didn't have technology then. We didn't have DNA, we didn't have a crime scene. You know, we don't have a bad guy's DNA. Technology has helped us in the last year, well, I think it was a year and a half ago, um, we managed to get Michael's actual profile from an item of his. So that allowed us to do further testing and, and utilize his DNA, which people lean on that a lot. They always assume, oh, it's DNA that's going to solve the whole case. And it isn't. DNA, you can't convict anyone on DNA. It's simply a roadmap to a case. You need evidence and you need a whole bunch of other stuff. So changes in relationships of people that may have been involved, may have known, and those people coming forward. And yet, without a clear scene of the crime, evidence collected that day has yet to prove helpful. They've collected evidence from the scene, but there's been no profile or evidence that has had has moved the investigation forward whatsoever. So here's the challenge. He was seen leaving the car in the parking lot. We are going presumptively, you know, many people go presumptively that he was potentially grabbed or abducted from the parking lot before he made it to the playground or at the playground. That person would have to be interchangeable with everybody there to do that. It's a very high-risk situation. Is there a possibility that he was lured away from the immediate area? Is it possible that he wandered away from the immediate area? We don't know. So we don't know where our scene is. To pick up everything within a three-block radius would be problematic. So they, they picked up what they could understanding what they did at the time. But I think um, you don't have any direction with that. There was a lot of people there. You know, if you think about it, the game ended, there's one game started at 11 and that was ending and the next game was starting at one. And because of the timing of that, you have families leaving and families grab getting their kids and, and leaving and then you have people arriving. So it's the perfect moment to be interchangeable and to blend in. With no crime scene evidence, witnesses are key. There was actually four witnesses, including the Denny's, four in total that actually saw Michael at the parking lot. So um, there was a couple other people. Um, one was a football player and there was someone else in the parking lot. There's other people that believe they may have seen him, but keep in mind that a lot of um, witness accounts from there have not been corroborated and couldn't be confirmed, and they weren't 100%. Bruce and Crystal Dennehy are two of the witnesses who saw Michael. 
The friend they drove to the game, Donna, now deceased, is a third. I spoke with one other football player who believes she saw Michael that day. And in the episode ahead, you'll hear from one other witness. And it is a child witness who first points to the brown van. There was a witness that, a child witness that um, believed she saw Michael. I think in, in the early 90s, child interviews weren't really known. Like we didn't have the same protocols and processes we have now. Later on, it was learned that it was likely untrue. So what happens with an investigation when something goes out into the media, a tidal wave of tips comes in, which is what happened with the brown van. They had 1,300 tips within days. They were inundated with brown van tips. It was after that that they learned that it was likely not true that it was made up because children want to help. There's a very specific training you need now to do child interviews. And I'm not putting that on just the members, you know, but it's it's very easy for for kids that are scared to want to help and think they're helping by coming up with something from their imagination. What that did was kind of deter resources to the brown van Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a brown van. There could have been one. So that's the tricky part. Mm -hmm. If you say, oh, no, that hang on, guys, that wasn't, we we believe that wasn't true. Are you now inhibiting people from coming forward with Mm -hmm. information? So now they're in that position. It's tricky. At what point do you start thinking it's not a a good tip or it's not as credible as you hoped? Well, I don't want to get into too much detail there, but there were more interviews with with the person and then follow up as an adult too. Um, They started to realize that it was probably made up. So, I mean, I can say 100% that it was, but we believe that it was. The brown van, real or imagined, is a big part of the investigation. And even if the child witness is unreliable it's possible the brown van was real. Apart from the brown van tip, one of the other leads that I spotted in the early news stories of the time is a suspect sketch. Here's what we know about the providence of that piece of information. Yeah, so it was actually a witness from one of the nearby apartment buildings looking down on the park, and they observed a man who appeared to not have a purpose there hanging around and watching. And in Sandy Park, there was a family playing. And Sandy Park is the park located at Work and Kings, sort of right across from the playground. Um, So the man was over there. And so that witness called that in, and that's where the composite sketch came from. And does that end up being useful, ongoing? Like, is that still something? They actually identified a possible suspect from that sketch, yeah. And um, that person was almost eliminated, but we pretty much got him as a person of interest, so... In those early days, as tips flow in, a brown van, a man lurking in the park, police also focus their attention on those closest to Michael. Family, friends, neighbors need to be ruled out. So they looked into family members and immediate family members, friends, caregivers, neighbors. You sort of work your way out and you learn the timeline and the relationships of those people and you just gradually work through it all and and start weeding them, trying to weed them out. 
it's it's tough to do 100%. I've spoken with some of those family members who were investigated by police, asked to undergo polygraphs, who needed to be excluded. They tell me it's hard, but they also say they are eager to do whatever needs to be done to clear the path for police to move on. And I also think about Michael's Aunt Karen, a woman who was also his caregiver. She told me she wasn't interviewed at all until 10 years after the fact. And I wonder, could other people who knew Michael have somehow slipped through the cracks? A neighbor, a friend of a friend. But why? Why would any of them, why would anyone take Michael? You have to look at the motivation, too, of of why you would take a child. You know, there's sort of four top motivators to take a child his age. One is sexual, one is anger, revenge, financial gain, and then child replacement. So these are all things that they consider when they look at the profiles of the different individuals that we're looking at. I ask if there is anyone in the Dunahee's circle who might have wanted revenge for some reason. Police found nothing. And what of the search itself? Detective Robertson describes what she makes of the search as she looks back on the file. It gets searched in quadrants by volunteers and police officers. Um, They also did actual entry searches into homes, checking basements and closets and, and that within several blocks. And then they gradually quadrant out waterways, sewers, if you could have got stuck in one of those, dumpsters, if you climbed in one of those. Um, And then they used a heat-seeking technology uh, with the RCMP and did low flights over the entire area. It's used to find remains. It's used to find uh, anyone, any heat signature whatsoever. And in that, they actually found heat signatures of multiple animals and things in the bushes. And then they have a ground crew that goes in and checks dive searches in the Inner Harbor, in the Gorge, in Thetis Lake. You know, the searching has expanded out and out and out and out and out. I mean, it's, it's an automatic assumption. It happens, the assumption happens pretty quickly that it's an abduction. But they didn't rule out the possibility that it could have been an accident or, you know, he wandered off somewhere. They examined it very thoroughly. You've heard about the empty, derelict house across from the park about the building under construction. There's really no shortage of places for a small child to hide or to have possibly been injured accidentally. But the quest to find Michael is by all accounts extensive. The notion that he could have simply been missed just feels so unlikely. The tough part in these cases, especially his, is the forest through the trees situation. There's a big forest. In earlier episodes, we learned about the hypnosis the police used to try to prod memories from those who were in the area that day. Forensic hypnosis is used in criminal investigations to try to induce a more focused state of mind. In one instance, the Victoria Police specifically used hypnosis to get a possible witness to recall the details of a license plate on a vehicle. Today, many courts have ruled that evidence obtained through forensic hypnosis cannot be used in criminal cases because testimony based on such evidence is not sufficiently reliable. The process can plant memories or skew existing memories. It can also make witnesses more certain of what they saw, even if those recollections turn out to be false. 
Detective Robertson confirms hypnosis was used, but that it was extremely unusual for the Victoria police to use it. The whole theory was to find in their memory uh, someone that was there that was un is unaccounted for. Someone that someone happened to see or a vehicle in the parking lot that your conscious memory doesn't remember, but it's actually in there. You actually have it in there. So they were willing to try. They were willing to try almost anything at that point to come up with a lead of exactly who, who did this. People's mem memory is a really funny thing. And a lot of times it, your memory doesn't kick in until later and your, your mind will fill in fragments. After the break, Detective Robertson on the tiers of suspect who have been ruled in or ruled out. In an earlier season of Violent Crime, former Vancouver police detective turned criminologist Kim Rosmo suggested I look at attempted abductions in my quest to see if disappearances of island men could be connected. His words come back to me once again as I consider Michael's case. I ask about attempted abductions around the time Michael disappears. Oh yeah, yeah, there, there would have been. Uh, nothing in the immediate area that I I'm aware of, but again, it's a very big file. One of the other things they look at is uh, for a year before parental abductions, where the parent was unsuccessful or caught and the child was similar to Michael, in the event that it could be a replacement of. Um, I know that they looked into that type of thing and also any other attempts. And there's been, there, there are lots, unfortunately, we've had you know, I, I've had tips, and it's funny, I, I get tips now from people reporting an attempted abduction on them as a child that was never recorded. But after an anniversary, I've had people come forward and say, look, when I was a child, uh, around night, the same time, um, I was approached by a, a van and a man or whatever, and, and he asked me to get in and I, I ran away, but I never told my mom about it. But now I'm listening to your, the case and I'm thinking you guys should probably know about that. So we'll, we'll get that kind of a tip as well. I also submit a freedom of information request regarding attempted child abductions in the area where Michael vanished for a couple of years before. But my request is not specific enough. It yields nothing. It turns out the pool of offenders is surprisingly large. It is amazing, like, when they first did this case and they looked and they did an examination of convicted sex offenders, at the time in 19, well, 1992, there were 1,200 convicted sex offenders in British Columbia. So that's a whole lot of people to look at. So they narrow the pool down to locally and to the type of offenders who would offend against a, a boy, a small boy. And they narrowed it down to in the 30s in the median area. We have a very high percentage of dangerous offenders here. We still do. I don't, I can't explain why. I think they're put here a lot, <laughs> um, off whether they're from the lower mainland or, or what have you. So, um, and then they started to break down and look at all of those people. So instead of just looking from the scene and that, then they started looking from, okay, who around here lives within the area? Because you're right. You know, uh, when you said a couple blocks away, it is actually 
statistically. Again, if we want to get into statistics, which I am cautioned with because I think sometimes it can drive you down the wrong path. Statistically, um, offenders of this type will live within a mile of their zone. Over 30 child sex offenders in the immediate area at the time of Michael's disappearance. My God, 30 in quaint, charming Victoria. When I began working on Missing Michael, I had an impression that there was just nothing when it came to suspects in Michael's case. I was absolutely wrong. It's funny, you know, when I started working on this case and you start looking through these people, you read one and you're like, this has got to be him. You know, I am so, this is going to be him. Then you read the next one and you're like, oh my, this is it. We have to. And when you get to number 50, it's disheartening that there's so many, but you actually have a problem. You have a lot of people. And that's why when people come to me with tips and they're like, especially victims of offenders, because of course the person offended against them, they feel is evil and has got to be the guy who did this, assuming it's a guy. But there's unfortunately more of them than people realize. And it is viable, but I actually have, you know, 30 others that are equally potentially viable. That's the challenge with this one. That I was, that's the, you know, if you say what stands out for me is, is a challenge that I wasn't expecting. And that would be too many possibles, but no, nothing to, to take it to the end, right? Nothing to, to connect it. Detective Robertson agrees to address specific suspect names. We begin by reviewing the barber Vernon Seitz discussed in an earlier episode. They investigated that lead. They actually worked with the Milwaukee police uh, because it, the connection between him and Michael, he kept weird things and he made claims, but he actually was never found to have actually done anything. Um, and he kept items of children and pornography and items. And within his property, when they did the search, they found one of Michael's missing person posters. Um, and that was the connection. So as they worked through um, with the American investigators and looked deeper into him, um, they found no further connection with him whatsoever. He was a collector of memorabilia. And we have had this before with some of these offenders having Michael's poster. I don't know if it, it's a keepsake for them or what, but uh, in this particular case, no connection was found with him. So he's not considered uh, a person of interest or a suspect on the case at this time. The day I interview Sergeant Robertson at the Victoria Police Station, she is wearing a small orange ribbon in recognition of the thousands of unmarked children's graves that are being discovered on sites of residential schools across Canada. The public is just beginning to wake up to the atrocities that occurred in the not-so-distant past. Among the worst of the abusers at the schools is the late Arthur Plint. In 1991, Arthur Plint was living less than two blocks away from where Michael disappears. It is later confirmed that Plint was outside of his home that day and that police did speak with him and enter his apartment. Plint was a supervisor at the Alberni Indian Residential School. 
just a few years after Michael's abduction, Plint will be convicted of assaulting boys between the ages of 6 and 13, with charges involving 18 victims. The judge at the time describes Plint as a sexual terrorist for assaulting the children who were essentially prisoners at the school. Uh, no, he's not a suspect in this case. Well, and But was for a time? Or he's well, a they look at everyone, yeah. right? And of course they would look at him, but um, he's been excluded. So for the time that that occurred. But um, he's, he's not a current suspect. In a newspaper article from 1995... A friend of Plint is quoted as saying he and Plint discussed the Dunahee case, but only because it was in the news at the time. That friend also believes Plint was incapable of being involved in Michael's disappearance as he was 70 at the time and using a cane to help him walk. In my efforts to surface suspects in this case, I have reached out to sex offenders and pedophiles, Back when I worked in a Vancouver newsroom, part of my job with the early morning team involved greeting guests at the front door and walking them to the studio. One morning, I was dispatched to greet a guest. I remember his handshake was soft and clammy. And later that morning, I learned he was a member of a group called NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, essentially an advocacy organization for pedophiles. The organization still exists, so I send them a request, thinking if they have members on Vancouver Island, perhaps one of them could hold information about what happened to Michael. My carefully worded appeal results in two angry responses, telling me, essentially, that the request is offensive and accusing me of ignorance and malice. They also let me know they may print my emails in their newsletter, to help educate readers as to the prejudice towards pedophiles. And perhaps not surprisingly, they are unwilling to help. I notice a convicted sex offender commenting online about the Dennehy case. Again, this is someone I interviewed on an unrelated matter years ago a man who spent decades in jail rubbing shoulders with other sex offenders. I reach out to him. This time, I get a surprising response. This source tells me he believes that a man dubbed the Abbotsford killer, Terry Driver, is responsible for Michael's disappearance. He sends me Driver's trial transcript, images of diagrams and maps. He has spent time developing this theory. But the theory seems off to me. I remember the attack on teenagers Tanya Smith and Misty Cockrell in 1995. 16-year-old Tanya was killed. Driver then taunted police and a local radio station, vowing to kill again. Clearly, he is capable of violent, terrible acts. But he also loved the attention. And I can't see him keeping silent about Michael for 30 years. I never get a chance to ask him, though. Driver dies in prison not long after his name is raised to me. Still, I asked Detective Robertson if Terry Driver, the Abbotsford killer, was ever a suspect in Michael's case. No, he doesn't. His profile is a bit different than mm-hmm. this. It's not a small boy. It was young girls. Yes. Um, and there, we found no connection with him whatsoever, so he's not part of our suspects. 
Much of the work on the Dennehy file involves ruling people out or ruling them in. And as they try to include or exclude subjects, sometimes it comes down to likelihood. They can't be 100% sure. But 30 years of investigation has resulted in a short list of viable suspects. There's so much. but There's different levels of, of knowing, right? There's what you look at and make sense to you and you bring a theory and say, yeah, theoretically, this is what I think happened. And then there is evidence-based where you have many things that's, that connect the dots um, to show you that this is likely what happened and you're supported by independent evidence. You know it as a journalist. Like, we're, we're, um, there's knowing and there's proving. So I can have all of these suspects at the level of they fit the bill, they could have been in the area, you know, they have the they have the means, they have the motivation, but it's getting it to the point of being able to prove um, or even know for certain. You know, you can get up there and everyone has their theories of what happened, but no one knows. I've worked on a few stories over the years where people connected with a case, including police officers, will tell me, look, we know who did it. We just can't prove it. Yet. The suspects that we have are worth continuing to look at. And um, historically with cold cases, it's often those people that come up in the investigation early on. Detective Robertson believes whomever took Michael is already on their radar. Let's just say I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out to be one of those people. I appreciate the difference between knowing and proving, but I'm still trying to get a read on just how close the police believe they could be to identifying and one day arresting someone in Michael's case. It's not a witch hunt. We, we're trying to find the truth. So we have to be careful to also protect those people that are subjects of the investigation until we are able to say with certainty that this is who we're looking at. And of course, the possibility that Michael could have been taken for the purpose of child pornography must also be considered. And, you know, we look at things like Project Cathedral or Operation Cathedral. It's that big child ring, the one they were looking at with Madeline McCann. So that international type of thing. So we were aware of those operations as well. And... You know, they're always trying to do facial recognition on children in images. What, sorry, I'm not, I didn't ask you about facial recognition. Is, has that ever been used in Michael's? Yes. Yeah, how, how so? Um, well, they'll use, they've tried to use it um, comparing images that we found through other investigations of children. And Michelle believes it's likely that whomever was involved in Michael's disappearance was someone from within the community. I think it's likely it was someone from here to know that area. That was, I feel, likely well-planned. Uh, not necessarily the target, um, but I feel like to do that, you have to be confident and you probably need to know the area to get in and out. But if the suspect was local, why was Michael a one-off? Why were no other children like him ever abducted again? 
Yeah, this is a, a subject of many debates, right? And and so the possibility is an offender um, could take a young child in this situation, and it blew up. Look at how it blew up, right? I mean, and it created havoc. So they may have decided to select an easier uh, offend or target older offend against older children, or that are that's going to be less of a uh, create a huge response the way that did. Um, it could be that they were immediately incarcerated after. It could be they died after. It could be they killed themselves after. It's not an offense you many share, right? So it's not, it wouldn't to me be unlikely that someone would keep it to themselves if they did something like that. Or they're keeping it a secret because they have him somewhere else. It's, it's a hard question to ask why, why it hasn't happened since. Michael vanished 30 years ago. And so, as with all cold cases, time is running out for those who hold information to come forward. Some suspects may already have taken their secret to the grave. The suspects and the witnesses are passing away. Like, you you only really have so much time to solve these cases, but many of our suspects have passed. Mm-hmm. Which must be so uh, disheartening. Yeah, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit frustrating. But again, sometimes, you know, you may not get a conviction on that person, but maybe that person passing will give, allow someone else to have the courage to come forward and say, "I know what happened. Right. I know where they are." Perhaps someone passing will give closure. I don't know. With the passage of time. I would have thought there wouldn't have been many recent searches for Michael. But again, when I ask about searches, the answer surprises me. Yeah, there's been different searches in different areas. I can't get into specifics because it's still like an open active case. But um, if we get information that someone thinks there's uh, suspicious, something buried in the ground, right now they're very, if we do any searches, it's very directed to from information. But so. there have been searches mm-hmm. in recent years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what of that possibility that Don Bland first raised, that there may be no one except the perpetrator who knows anything about what happened to Michael? If, if you acted solely alone and you walked into a parking lot, escorted out someone, and let's just say no one actually saw that happen. It's possible. There is no one with that saw it happen, or they saw it and didn't even know they saw it. And they've not shared that with anyone. There's no witnesses to it, and they managed to hide him. What do we have? I always like to believe that there's that clue out there. There's still something out there. Someone said something to someone, or someone knows. Um, And we follow everything that we can and hope for the best. But is it possible that we don't find out? Yeah, and I I hate that. It's emotional quicksand. So Detective Robertson chooses to believe that information is out there and that a person may still now choose to step up. If, if someone is afraid to come forward and they have a truth that they need to tell me, those are the people I need to talk to. Um, and, and I want them to know that they can come forward in a safe way because it's very important to us that we learn what happens even if it just brings closure and there is no big court case or anything even if it's just answers 
for the family. If there's someone that has that information that they know is specific to him and they know exactly what happens, that it's time, it's time to end this for the Dunahee family. Like everyone I've spoken to about the Dunahee case, Detective Robertson really just wants it to be over. I just want it to end. I just pray for that closure for them. It will always stay with me. It will always watch. And I'm sure the guys you talk to, they, they're watching, they're listening to what I'm doing, you know. It doesn't go away. You carry these cases with you forever. When you work on them long-term and you become connected with the family, you don't just retire and I hope, I hope for closure for all of us. <laughs> Ahead on Missing Michael, a possible eyewitness who has never spoken publicly about her story. But first, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Donahue loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldonahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. 